take your Bible this morning, open it back up to the book of Ephesians. We're expositing through, I am, the book of Ephesians. You are active listeners, and we come to that wonderful section in chapter 2, in verses 4 through 7. Let me read that text for you, actually, in 2, 1 through 7, where Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses, or in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what He's going to do with our life. And we have the wonderful opportunity at the conclusion of this time together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let me just bow us in a word of prayer and we'll begin. Father, thank you for the wonderful privilege to gather together. Thank you for the wonderful privilege of even the believer's life that you've put, according to Psalm 40, a new song on our heart. And so the songs reflect that which has already been wrought in our hearts. Father, would you be our teacher this day? May the scripture come alive. May the Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts and mind. And Lord, certainly as we turn our attention to communion, Father, may we fix our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, in the midst of a unique time, as Shay reminded us earlier, Father, you're sovereign over the good and the evil. And so, Father, we recognize even this day your utter sovereign control over all things. So guide us, remind us of who we are today, that we might rejoice in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. In your name, amen. Well, I begin with a a question for you this morning as we go to Ephesians 2 is, how did God turn children of wrath into trophies of His grace? How did He turn sinners that we saw in 2, 1 through 3 into saints? Really, we looked extensively at chapter 1 at our high calling in the heavenlies, if you will. But as we come into chapter 2, chapter 2 is a, I just call it a spiritual biography of how the elect how the redeemed, how sinners went from sinners to saints, and how they were transferred from darkness to light. And in this spiritual biography, Paul is describing these three things. As you look next, he's describing our past, present, and future. He's looking at our past condition, what we were before Christ, then our present transformation, what we are, even this morning, in Christ. And then I'll just say our future summation, what we become in Christ. And we'll touch on verse 7 even today of why He redeemed us. But just for a moment, because we had holidays and Christmas break, our past condition, obviously in 2, 1 through 3, He says of our past condition that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were, we were, spiritually dead. We were D-O-A. We were literally dead on arrival, out of the womb, conceived in sin, Psalm 51, and not only a sinner by nature, but a sinner by choice as we followed the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. So he said, not only were you dead, but you were depraved spiritually depraved. We'll talk about that this Wednesday at six in the morning at men's equippers. In other words, you were in bondage to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And because of that deadness and because of that depravity, 
we were doomed to hell. The Bible says in 2-3 there that we were children of wrath. And the question that we posed a few weeks back is what could man do? And the answer is nothing. There was nothing we can do. I think we understand biblical depravity. It says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, there was no life on us. The spiritual EKG system just gave a straight line. There was no beating heart for the things of God. In fact, this is the truth of Scripture, is that only God can make dead men spiritually alive. And that's where we left off in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy... He made us alive. You say, well, how did He do that? Well, I take you from our past condition to our present transformation. He brought about our spiritual life through three decisive acts, at least in this text. There's three decisive acts in 2, 1 through 10. There's a lot said there. I call them three decisive acts because there's three distinct verbs that we find there. And I don't mean to do a history lesson. I just want you to know, obviously, this is the inspired Word of God. And so the Word comes to us as the greatest piece of truth ever seen in our world, but it's also written by God Himself. You say, well, what did He do? He he made us alive. And there's three verbs there. Number one, He made us alive. Number two is in verse 6. He raised us up with Him. And then number three, He seated us with Him. So He made us alive, He raised us up, and He seated us with Christ. And so what Paul is driving at is the spiritual transformation of grace that took place in our life when you came to Christ. Now I don't know if I was all aware of this, or even some of it, When I came to Christ, I certainly knew that I was a sinner. I certainly knew that I had offended a holy God. But like we say, salvation is like a diamond. It's brilliant from all sides. It's brilliant from all shapes and colors, if you will, that reflect into that diamond. He did a marvelous miracle. He caused our transformation. Now, don't forget that as we step into this text, even here this morning, it is but an illustration of chapter 1 in verse 19. Go back to that. Maybe it's on the same page in your Bible. When he's in prayer for us, and he prays in verse 19 of chapter 1, that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Now watch this. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ... When he raised him from the dead, in other words, he made him alive, that he seated him, Christ, at his right hand, his work was done in the heavenly places. And then thirdly, it says there that he placed him above all rule, authority, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So beloved, I want you to understand as you set your eyes in chapter 2, it is but an illustration of what happened In the life of Christ, actually very quickly, he died, if you will, on a Friday. He was raised to life on a Sunday. He went on for over 40 days and 40 nights, and then he ascended into glory, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And so, what's thrilling here, though, in chapter 2, chapter 1 spoke about Christ, is that Paul is not talking about Christ in 2, 4 through 7. Obviously, you can't disconnect it from him. He's talking about you. That's the the point here. He made you alive. He raised up you from death to walk in the newness of life. And he seated you with him in the heavenly places. Now, this is what we profoundly speak of when we talk about this phrase, union with Christ. We are in union with Christ. We have participated in His life, death, and resurrection. We have experienced, if you will, as a believer, the power of God at work in Christ's resurrection and exaltation. And what Paul is profoundly saying 
is these have taken place in the believer's life. Listen, biblically, spiritually, some people call this the mystical union. When you trusted Jesus Christ, you were by, by divine miracle taken back 2,000 years, as it were, and made to participate not only in his death, in his burial, and even in his resurrection with him. Do you remember that verse? We used to sing a song on it. I might quote some songs today. In Galatians 2.20, when, when Paul said there that, that he no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. In fact, look, look back just for a second. I love that phrase. I'll, I'll touch on this a little bit today in this ideal of union where he said, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, when he died, I died. In other words, the believer goes through death. He's already born dead, but then he's made alive. And Paul is saying by way of union that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ, there's that phrase, lives in me. And he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And now, this, this is true. You say, well, how could this happen? Well, in chapter 2, look back down at your Bible. You don't want to miss this. In the Greek, it's called a preposition and it's connected to, but look at 5. He made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, he raised us up with him. Verse 6, he, thirdly, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. So all of this is made possible by our union with Christ. Now, one of the things I want to drill down because it's the intent of the author is Paul speaks of this as already taking place. So what do you mean already taking place? Well, the, the verbs there are in what we call the past tense. In other words, they've already occurred. He is, of course, speaking spiritually. He's speaking positionally. You have been made alive. You have been raised with Christ. You have been seated with Him. And He uses that language in 2.6 and placed in the heavenly places. In fact, you remember already in 1.3 is blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It says in 120 of Christ that he was seated at his right hand in the heavenly places. And because you're now in Christ, if you are, he made you alive, he raised you up, and he seated you with Christ. In other words, you have a new life in Christ. T take your Bible just for a moment. Look over in Romans chapter 6. I just want to talk just for another moment here on union. In Romans chapter 6, you see this in Romans 6, you see it in Romans 8, you see it in Colossians 2. But remember this language in Romans 6, and I'm on this ideal of union. He says, we were, in 6.4, buried with him by baptism. He's not talking water there. He's saying, you have identified with Christ in a spiritual baptism. He says there in 6.4, unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might, the thought would be, were raised and might walk in the newness of life. Verse 5, for we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And we know that the old self in Romans 6.6 6 was what? Crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be what? Enslaved to sin. He made you alive. You, were, you died. When He died, you died. And you died to that power residing in you. Beloved, you no longer have to sin. Obviously, we do sin. That's called Romans chapter 7. But He broke, if you will, the power of sin that once held you and He raised you to the newness of life. In fact, look at verse 8. It says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. 
You say, well, how did we come into that union? Well, obviously, Romans chapter 4, by faith, we are united to Him. Now, you might ask a question then, hey, what does that look like? What does this union look like? What does this identification and the the fact that he's transferred us and he made us alive? Well, enough to say that we are no longer belong to this world. Amen? You no longer belong to the world in the sense that the world owns you and controls you. You no longer belong to the world's mindset, if you will, or its outlook, or even its desires. He has delivered you out of this present world. The world no longer controls us. The flesh no longer controls us. Now, obviously, we're going to battle sin, but it doesn't own you. You're not enslaved to it. Certainly, we'll see the battle in Ephesians chapter 6, not against flesh and blood, but nevertheless, He made you alive. Nevertheless, He raised you up. He seated you with Him in the heavenly places. We are, as one writer says, strangers and aliens on this, what, earth. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in, where? Heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I just want to encourage you today. This was a crazy week in our world. But beloved, we're aliens and strangers, amen? Our citizenship as we know it is in heaven. If you're banking on something on this earth, not only is that sinful, uh, but it's just not what he's called us to. Paul said it this way in Colossians 3. Do you remember it? Maybe some of you have it memorized. If then you have been what? Raised up with Christ, and we call that a first class conditional clause. It's not a question if you have, but because you have been raised up with Christ, you say, what do you mean raised up with him? Spiritually so. He took your dead heart and he made you alive. He took you where you once resided and raised you into the heavenlies. And he said, if that's be the case, and it is, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, beloved, on the things that are above and not on Fox News, okay? Set it on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have, what does it say there? Died. Well, what do you mean? Well, you died to your old life. Water baptism is a picture of that. You rise to the new life, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, that's our life now. So, okay, the union, what what else? Well, just we belong to God. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our life is there. Our conversation is there. Our hope is there. Our focus is there. Our finances are there. Thank you. Even for that, we just got out of a wonderful members meeting way over above the, the giving. And that's a reflection of the heart of this church You are hid with Christ in God. This present transformation is so radical that we who were once dead, we have been made alive, raised with Him and seated with Him. And one day, we'll be fully made alive with a new body, amen. We will be literally raised up and seated with Him in glory. Now what I want to do just as we go into the communion, as we turn back to Ephesians 2, is I just want to tell you a little bit more about what this means. I want to tell you two things. One, first, what God has done. And then secondly, answer the question, why God has done it. Number one, what God has done. What what did he do? And then secondly, the motive. What moved God? Why has God done it? Well, first, what has God done? And he gives us three transforming truths. Let me touch on those. Number one, the main verb in 2.5 is he, he made us alive. So what does that mean? Literally, just he, he saved us to be made alive. I think we touched on that. It means to be born again. It means to be regenerated. <clears throat> it is an act of God by which he imparts 
spiritual life to you. You at one time were dead in your trespasses and sins and doomed, and he made you alive. So what is that? Well, it's a miracle. It's a miracle that takes place in the heart of every child that comes to Christ, in the heart of every believer. He takes a heart, a hard heart, and he transforms it. There is a song, we sing it. All I have is Christ. Here's one of the stanzas from that. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the what? The way. That's our life before Christ. I mean, this is the testimony of an unconverted person. In other words, when you're unconverted, you had no idea of what was going on. You had no life in you. You were blind. In fact, beloved, do you remember when we were expositing through the Gospel of John and we came to chapter 11? This is about how it works. How And Lazarus died. You remember that. And you remember the great miracle that he called him forth from the tomb and Lazarus came out wrapped in grave cloths and he was instructed they were to remove those grave cloths from him. He went from dead to life. But what's amazing, you remember when uh, she wanted to call him out, that his sister said, by now he, King James, stinketh, right? He was four days dead. Then he comes out, he lives. Then in John chapter 12, I won't turn you to it, it says that it's Passover season. It's just the next chapter, and obviously Lazarus is alive. It's six days before Passover, and they were reclining, the ESV says, at table, and they gave, some people did, a dinner for Jesus, and Lazarus is there. I mean, we know that he was raised from the dead, but imagine and put yourself at that meal with Jesus, and somebody asking a conversation, hey, Lazarus, what's going on with you? <laughs> and Lazarus says, well, quite a lot, actually. I, I was just dead the last couple of weeks. Oh, really? You were? Yes, I wasn't just mostly dead like Prince's Bride. I was dead. Oh, really? And can you imagine that conversation? And, and well, what happened to you, Lazarus? Jesus raised me. And, he, and I'm sure he began to tell people at that table what the Lord had done. Listen, that becomes a picture of you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. I understand walking as a spiritual zombie in 2-1, but you were spiritually dead. And the miracle here is that God worked in your life and changed you. He made you alive. I think as Matt and I and some of the staff and elders work through the testimonies, both at membership and baptism, that is what we're looking for. A changed heart, a changed life. And we see that, and it's wonderful to behold. Do you remember that great song, we sing it here again, by Bob Coughlin, is the author of it, wrote it, and it's called, Oh Great God. Here's how it goes. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know the love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your words to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. That's the present transformation. He made you alive and caused you to be born again. But there's a second transforming truth. It says there in verse uh, six, invert the second transforming truth. He raised us up with him. He raised us, let's say, spiritually. Obviously, he didn't raise you physically. You're listening to me right now. Oh, one day you'll be raised. But he raised you in a spiritual realm and put you, if you will, in the heavenly so that you walk in obedience. Listen, when God raised you, when God raised me, he didn't leave us in the cemetery, right? 
He raised us, according to Romans 6.4, to walk in the what? The newness of life. What, what Paul is drawing, he's drawing a contrast here, isn't he? Is he not? Sin characterized your old life. Now righteousness characterizes our new life. In fact, in coming to Christ, we receive a new heart, Ezekiel 36. We receive, according to Ezekiel 18, a new spirit, John chapter 3. And I love Psalm 40. We sing a new song. That's why when we gather together, it's enough just to come even this day and gather together and sing. And do you know how many believers I've met over the last weeks? How utterly depressing it is for their churches to be closed and their churches not to gather and for them not to sing together? Listen, we sing together. You say, why do you sing? Well, he made us new. He gave us a new life. He gave us a new heart. He gave us a new song. And he raised us up with him. In fact, that same song by Coughlin, Oh Great God, goes like this. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O oh, great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. In other words, he raised you up with him and gave you new heart, new affection, new desires. You have a passport and it's tied to heaven. I brought my passport here, at least an old one. You know, it's interesting when you kind of look at it a little more carefully. It's a passport. You guys have seen this. And on the very cover, you can't see it probably here. It just says the United States of America. And then as you look inside this passport, every place of all the countries I probably was in the last 10 years are all right here. But when you think about your passport, beloved, your passport is in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. We're strangers we're aliens. The song says we're just passing through. Why? Because of what he's done in your life. And so I, I think I want to say, but I probably won't say it too much. You ought to act like it. Now, I won't say that because I'm going to save that to chapter four through six. He's just building on what we call who you are in Christ. He's telling you why you don't have to no longer continue in an onslaught of continual sin because he's changed your life. He's He's raised you up. He's given you a new passport. It's tied to heaven. But there's a third transforming truth of what God did. Look at 2.6. Not only did He make you alive, raise you up with Him. Verse 6, He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There it is. When Christ sat down in 1.20, He sat at the Father's right hand. And we spoke of that. It spoke of the finished work of Christ. Now, you say, what's the point? By union with Him, by relationship with Him, He is seated, and now it says of us, we're seated with Him in the heavenly places. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, I think it's just assurance, reality. Your sins are forgiven, and your salvation is secure. In other words, if he's seated and his work is done and he died on that cross for your sins, you're not only raised up with him, you're seated with him and he gives you the profound assurance of your sins being forgiven. Think about the contrast here. We who were in bondage to the world, the devil and the flesh are now seated with him by virtue of our union with him. And beloved, I would say this encouragement is that because Christ overcame the devil, so can you. In other words, before Christ, you no longer, you, you, only, you didn't have the possibility to obey him, you could only disobey him. But if he defeated Satan and crushed him, then he is, in that sense, forever defeated. And yes, we're going to battle things. And Romans 7 and Ephesians 6, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but you understand your victory is secure. 
He's not telling you something that he hopes that will happen. This has already occurred in your life. What? You've been made alive. You've been raised up with him in the heavenly places. You presently right now by way of your union are seated with him. Just a word here. How comforting for these Ephesian believers who lived in an absolute culture of fear brought on by spiritual demonic powers all before their life in Christ are now seated with Him and placed in victory over the evil one. The war has already been won. You know, as I thought about this this week, just to encourage you, alive, raised, seated, I thought America is full of angry Christians. So-called, maybe, angry Christians. It goes something like this. Can you believe this? Look at this mess. Have you ever seen anything like this? May the Lord help our grandchildren. It's over and there's no future and it is utterly dreadful. But I just want to ask you, have you read your Bible even this morning? Have you seen where he's placed you? Have you seen not only what your past was, have you begun to glimpse at what you are right now in that present transformation? Here's what, beloved, we come into communion in a moment, what God has done. He made you alive. He raised you up with Him. He seated you with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now here's the question. (laughs) Why did He do this? What motivated God? Well, let me just say, this is what He did. And then secondly, I want to take you to why did God do this? And the answer lies in on who God is. Here's why He did it. Here's the inner working of the Trinity, the inner working of the heart of God, and there's just some attributes that are stringed there. You say, why did He do it? Well, look in verse 4, but God being, here's the first attribute, rich in mercy. Mercy. Not just mercy, but rich in mercy. Wealthy with mercy. Affluent with mercy. That when you think of the character of God and you ask, why would He do that? It's not anything you did. It's what He did. And what motivated Him? He's rich in mercy. Mercy, beloved, we spoke on that as God's compassion. It's His undeserved kindness to sinners. God gives us what we need, not what we deserve. He gives us mercy. And I think Paul never lost sight of that. In 1.16 of Timothy, can you imagine how much of a debtor he was and we should be when he said, I received mercy, the chief of all sinners, that in me is the foremost. Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He said, I received mercy. If he got what he deserved, it would be condemnation and judgment. If you got what you deserved, it would be condemnation and judgment. So as you take in just a moment the bread, as you take in just a moment the cup, the bread representing his life that was unto death, the cup obviously representing his shed, all you can do is pick it up like this, and it's a symbol, but in it is mercy on what he has done for you. It's his compassion to forgive sinners in our sorry condition. But there's a second attribute there. Look what it says. It says not only is he rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. His love. You say, what moved God? Well, his mercy moved God. Second attribute here is his love moved God. His love is great for us as sinners. You know, it's interesting that mercy is first and love is second. Because I think it's out of the fountain of love that the mercy of God flows. It is the love of God which guides his mercy 
What moved the Father in Luke 15 to mercy was His love. When He saw Him a great way off, He saw Him. And I think He saw Him because of His great love. Listen, as we partake of communion, you know this. You can finish the sentence with me in Romans 5.8 that God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. So here's what He did. But here's why He did it. Because of who He is. I don't know how you fashion God. I don't know how you fashion His character, but this is the Word of God telling us about the character of God. And what's interesting, He certainly is a God of wrath in 2-3. But what moved Him to redeem you is His mercy and love. And then there's a third attribute. It's in verse 5. He says that even when we were dead, he states it again in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then he mentions this, by grace you have been saved. In other words, what moved God to redeem you is this attribute, his grace. In other words, your salvation being made alive, raised up, seated with him is on the basis of grace that you have been saved. Grace, as we know, is a gift. We'll unpack that next week. It's God's favor in your pitiful condition, in my lost condition. He made you alive. And I want you to see something so you don't skip over it. Look down again at the text in verse 5. By grace you, what does it say? Have been, what? Saved. Listen. Salvation is full. You could actually say, I once was saved. You could also say, you're in the process of being saved. In other words, he's still transforming you and delivering you. And then one day, thirdly, you will be saved when you stand before him. It's all of a process. And when I say you, you are being saved, I just mean in the sanctification sense as we move to glory. But here, okay... You have been saved. So listen, you think that's a small point. No, your present condition, if you're in Christ, if you can believe it, you have been, past tense, saved is the thought. In other words, as you come to the Lord's table, this, the the language, is an accomplished fact. The, The idea here of grace is, and being saved, is a completed action with ongoing results is what we call a present participle. You don't have to know that. You just know, have to know this, is it's a completed action with ongoing results. You're saved now, and you're forever saved. Listen, rejoice in that. I don't know that the world is going a certain way, but can you believe it? Did he do this in your life? Did he raise you up? Go back to that point where you came to Christ. Go back to that place or go back to that reality. You have been saved. Now, I I could tease that out a little bit. Saved, you say saved from what? Well, the good news of the gospel is that all who put their faith in Christ shall be saved, Romans 5, 9, from God's, what? Is it up there? Wrath. Oh, listen, we ought to be so joyful. Listen, I know this is not an easy time, but out of all the people, we should be the ones reflecting salt and light, right? We should be the ones that have hope. We should be the ones who say, Lord, come, come quickly. Listen, you are not only delivered from the power of sin now, saved, but in the coming ages, you'll be delivered from the very presence of sin altogether. What a joyous thought. Can I quote a hymn for you? Dave Jackson quoted a number of hymns, so I'm going to quote one for him even right now. Some of you know it if you've been in Christ. It's a great hymn. It's called At Calvary. And and maybe it was the writer was thinking of Ephesians chapter 2. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not that my Lord was crucified, Knowing not it was for me he died. 
at Calvary. Mercy there, do you remember this one? Was great and grace was free. Pardon there was what? Multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And then it goes on to say, oh, the love, there's that attribute, that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. And then the later stanza goes like this. Oh, and now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. It's a wonderful hymn. Now, this. Why would God make you alive? Why would God raise you up? Why would God take us, even me, no pursuit of God in my family's life for a number of years, all growing up, then all of a sudden, somebody comes in and shares the good news. But why does he do that in my life? And why did he do it in your life? And listen, if you come out of a generation of believing homes, and he still did this in your life, the question would be big, why did he do that? I'm glad you asked. The answer's in the Bible. It's verse 7. Look at it. Here's what we call the purpose clause. So that, 2-7 of Ephesians, in the coming ages, this is outstanding, he might show, he might display, the thought is, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amazing. God's purpose in saving you, have you seen this before? Is to put you on display and what will be revealed is His grace in saving you and for all eternity that will be seen. And it won't be us. It won't be what we did. It won't be what we've done. It won't be in the decision we make. What the scripture is saying is that in the future summation, so that we dealt with our past condition, we saw our present transformation. The future summation is this. You will be put on display as a trophy of His grace. So what we sang about this morning is but a glimpse of eternity. Can you imagine being there in the fullness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? And what's going to happen at the end is He's going to display and show, I love that word, the immeasurable riches of His grace. Here's a fourth attribute. I don't count it as such, but I mean in my outline. In kindness. Do you realize how kind God is? Listen, here's what Jonathan Edwards preached. And then I got a comment on it. I had, to, I had a class in my doctorate degree, and it was a whole week on Jonathan Edwards with, with a Edwards renowned theologian. And uh, here's what he preached regarding this text He said, The creation of the world, it's heavy, but hang with me. The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart that in this way, I like the last phrase, that God may be glorified. End of quote. He did this on you. For you. You say, why did he do that? Mercy, love, grace, kindness, that in the future summation, your life, your upbringing, all that you had done before in trespasses and sins will be forgiven in him. 
There's a book Patty and I are listening to by Dane Ortland. It's called Gentle and Lowly. We gave it out to you at the end of the year. And he was commenting on this text, and he said, what does a breathtaking text like that mean for our real-time lives? As we stand and suffer our way through this barren world, panting for heaven. Here's what he said. It means that one day, God is going to walk us through the wardrobe into Narnia, and we will stand there, paralyzed with joy, wonder, and astonishment, and relief. Can you imagine that day? It means that as we stand there, we will never be scolded for, never looked at with disapproval, never told, enjoy this, but remember that you don't deserve this. The very point of heaven and eternity is to enjoy His grace and kindness. And if the point of heaven is to show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness, then we are safe, he said. Because the one thing that will keep us out is our sin, to which he said, can only heighten the spectacle of God's grace in kindness. What a thought. Those in union with him this morning are promised that all the haunted brokenness that affects everything, that affects every relationship, that affects every conversation, that affects every family, that affects every email, every wakening to the consciousness in the morning that every job, every vacation will one day be rewound and reversed. Listen, this is not heaven here. The more darkness and pain, biblically, that we experience in this life, the more relief in the next. In fact, the character says in C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, he said this, quote, that is what mortals us misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering this, no future bliss can make up for it. To which Lewis said, not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even the agony into a glory. Listen, if you're in Christ and raised up, He will take the evil. He will take all the suffering. He will take every agony and turn it into glory. Amazing. Listen, beloved, as we walk into communion, Ephesians 2 tells us, says that your death is not an end. It's actually a beginning. It's not a wall, but it's actually a door that you go through. It's not an exit, but it's an entrance to show the immeasurable, exceeding grace that he bestowed on you for all eternity. You say, well, why? Last question. Why does God want to be kind to me? And, and if you're like me, and all, you'd think most believers would say, well, I just don't deserve it. You're right. So why would he do it? Because he's rich in mercy. He's great in love. He lavishes his grace upon you. And he extends his kindness to you. You were saved, beloved, so that God could shower his grace on you for the rest of eternity. And he doesn't hold anything back. We have a great God, don't we? You know, one night in the cold Atlantic, there was a grim countdown and it reached zero for over 2,000 people. But the Titanic, the unsinkable ship, sank. But the amazing part of the story is that many on that boat reached their end voluntarily. I've heard and read that even as the ship was sinking, the band played on. 
kind of reminds you of the world. The ship's sinking, but the band, just crank it up, and it, it's, it's going down. He said, how did they reach their end voluntarily? Well, they refused to get in the lifeboat that pulled away a half-empty ship convinced that the ship couldn't sink. They just stayed in the boat, not believing that it could sink. So they went to their death. And, you know, just the Titanic reminds me of our own day. The world is sinking. And all the politicians and all the educators and all the psychologists can't stop the leaks. The world is sinking and the band is playing on. And for some, it's just life as usual. But the ship, their life is taking on water and life is going down. And I just want to say to you that Jesus Christ is the only lifeboat that saves you from death and takes you to the immortal shores of heaven. And I just would say to you, just as graciously as I can, is what fool dies voluntarily? I just want to exhort you to not be a fool this morning out of love for you. To pass up His mercy, His great love, His grace, and His kindness on you. I just would have to say, if you're battling, listen, I don't want to give up my life. Listen, the band's playing on. In fact, the scary part is you're not just going down. You know what I'm going to say? You're already down. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And so I hold out to you the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's there for you. He sent His only Son to step into a place and do for you what you could never do. You say, well, how do I access that? You access, access that, we'll see next week, through faith in Jesus Christ. Look away for yourself. Look at to what he did on the cross and you shall be saved. You got to repent of your sin. But listen, I promise you, he's going to give you a new life. He's going to give you a new passport and the passport's going to say heaven. And for the rest of eternity, he's going to shower down on you the riches of his grace.